It is an afternoon of up and downs. Scores keep going up at the U.S. Open in golf. Unless you're Dustin Johnson. He seems to be the only guy who can make his score go down. Tiger Woods, that's on the way up. Tiger Woods is in tough to make it into the weekend at the U.S. Open. And the match count is going up at the World Cup of Soccer. We are going to talk next hour with Declan Hill. And he is a fascinating guy to talk to because he once infiltrated a match-fixing ring in soccer. And he's been studying FIFA. He's an investigative journalist. And he knows a lot about the interworkings of FIFA. And he will give his thoughts initially on why it is that Canada, the United States, and Mexico might be hosting in 2026. And according to Declan Hill, it doesn't have as much to do with the $11 billion in guaranteed money. Sure, that's nice little side effect maybe, or maybe a part of it. But Declan Hill believes there's something more to it, and that something involves the FBI. So that's coming up next hour. We'll hear from Declan Hill, and he'll run through why it is that match fixers are going to be still at the World Cup in Russia. Whether they'll be able to do anything, who knows? But let's look back to last week. There was a report of referees who were scheduled to go and work at the World Cup who were then all of a sudden told, no, actually, you're not going to go because apparently they had taken bribes. So this stuff is going on even as the World Cup unfolds. And Declan always has some really, really interesting stories, really, really interesting ways of looking at things. We are also going to get you set for the weekend that is at the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum next hour. And a little later on this hour, we have a member of the Detroit Lions in town today, and that's Luke Wilson. And he's here for the Jumpstart program through Canadian Tire, but we're going to be able to talk to him not just about that, but also about the NFL, but winning a Super Bowl with the Seattle Seahawks. So he will join us on the show. And in about five minutes from now, we'll get into the summer trip of a lifetime if you're a baseball fan. Jacob Wallace is taking it. He is going all over the place by train and catching 19 major league and minor league baseball games at different ballparks. And he's also checking out transit at the same time. So not only will we talk to him about visiting all these parks and what's that, what that's been like, we'll have to ask him about different transit systems and whether or not there's anything that he has seen that he really likes from one particular city. So that's coming up. So jam-packed Friday show. I don't know if you've seen this story yet. I still... Can't believe it. Wild story to end the week. And this has been absolutely everywhere. And it's one that you just look at and you say, how does this possibly happen? How is somebody this self-centered? And I hope that this is not a sign of things to come. Because you know what? The human race, with the invention of the way that we use social media, is a lot more self-centered now. You are your own superstar. You can make yourself into a superstar. You can have done nothing, Kardashians, and yet you can be a superstar. So here's the story. Comes out of Montreal. You have 
a guy who is an amazing musician, plays the clarinet, and he applied for a $50,000 scholarship. And the hope was that he could get this scholarship and that that would help to pay for his tuition and room and board, and he would go to the Colburn Conservatory of Music in Los Angeles. So full two-year scholarship. This is one of the places to go and study if you do what Eric Abramovitz does. So he applies for this. He has a girlfriend at the time. And a letter comes back from the Colburn Conservatory of Music in Los Angeles. And she gets it before he does. And she opens it. And she sees that he's won a scholarship. He's been awarded a $50,000 scholarship. And instead of telling him, she gets rid of the letter. And then she creates an email account and she emails him and makes it look like it's coming from the Colburn Conservatory of Music in Los Angeles and tells him that he didn't get the scholarship. And then she emails from another fake account, the actual Colburn Conservatory of Music in Los Angeles, and pretends to be him and says, yeah, I'm going to turn that down. So he was awarded a $50,000 scholarship. He was going to go to one of the top music programs. And she intercepts it and turns it down. Why? Why did she do this? Well, this has now gone through a lawsuit. This has gone through a lot of stages. And apparently she did this because she was worried that he would leave her. So she intercepts a $50,000 scholarship because she doesn't want to see her boyfriend go somewhere where she isn't. Wrecks a dream? Well, you know what? He's still making his way in the world today. He earned a position with the Nashville Symphony, or sorry, Symphony Orchestra, and then he actually was appointed associate principal clarinet of the Toronto Symphony Orchestra just last March. But... He sued his girlfriend, and he won. And he's been awarded $350,000 in damages. And that sounds all fine until you realize, yeah, but then you have to get it. So either her wages can be garnished for the foreseeable future until she has rung up $350,000, or he never gets it. I mean, we always look at lawsuit awards, and you think, whoa, wow. That person got that much money. No, that person was awarded that much money. How much they actually get? Eh, we never really find out that end of the story. Can you believe that? Doesn't want to lose her boyfriend, so intercepts a $50,000 scholarship. Makes him think he didn't get it. Tells the school he didn't want it. You know what? If I was the school, I'd want to hear that from him in person, to tell you the truth. I would want to call and say, um, you know what? We, we got this email. But we find it kind of strange. We're offering to give you a dream shot. We're offering to give you 50 grand. And you're saying, no, everything okay on your end? Is, is, anything, is there anything we can do? 
Can I send a card? That's a crazy story. Came out of Montreal. That is the wild story to end the week. Up next, we're going to meet a man who is going through a wild trip. And he has made his way to Canada, possibly, I think, for the very first time. We'll welcome him to Canada and find out why he is going to 19 major league and minor league ballparks all by train. Not plane, not automobile, just the train part. No Steve Martin in this, just the train and all of these ballparks. Why? How does this happen? And we'll talk transit with them too, believe it or not. That's coming up on London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. It has been a very interesting week, and we're going to recap it in a few ways as we go out through the show. However, right now, we want to talk about something that is happening this weekend and this month and on into the month of July. Picture getting on train and going absolutely everywhere, going to all kinds of ballparks. That is the summer for Jacob Wallace. He's visiting 19 ballparks, minor and major league parks, using rail transportation, and he has just arrived in Canada. He actually made a little stop in London yesterday and then made his way on to Toronto, and he joins us now on London Live. Jacob, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing today, Mike? Not bad. Welcome to Canada. Thank you so much. It is lovely here. (laughs) Well, good. You've come at the right time. You've come for some sunshine. You might even get roof open at what used to be called Sky Dome, and I think people still say roof open (laughs) at the dome. Is this your first time here? Yeah, this is my first time in Canada, even. Well, that's not bad. So let's talk about what you have been up to, because this it would seem like a pretty daunting task to coordinate. What are you doing this summer? Yeah, so I am traveling across um, North America by rail, um, mostly in uh, the U.S., where I'm from, but I'm taking a detour here up to Toronto, and then at the end of my trip to Vancouver as well. And along the way, I'm attending 19 baseball games. And they're not necessarily 19 games at the major league level. Where else are you seeing games? Sure, yeah. So there was nine major league games on the trip and then 10 uh, minor league games. So, uh, for instance, I was in Savannah, Georgia, where the Savannah Bananas play. Um, and found one heck of a sure. The Savannah Bananas. Did you manage to get a hat, at least, or a T-shirt from something like that? Oh, definitely. I'm I'm collecting hats from every minor league team that I go to, so I've got an extensive collection already. Nice. (laughs) How far along are you in this particular 19-game journey? Yeah, so I'm about halfway. Um, So I have done 20 days in total, and I'll be done on July 2nd. So it'll be 37 days. Uh, once it's done. And obviously you've got to be a pretty big baseball fan to do this. Where did the idea come from? Oh, sure. So, yeah, I've been a baseball fan since I was a kid. Um, And I actually heard about the trip um, and knew that there was going to be a lot of rail travel, which I was interested in, and that they had chosen uh, a theme for the program this year, and that would be baseball. And I was like, well, those are two things that I'm very much interested in. Um, so I applied and I got the position and now here I am. 
That's amazing. Okay, so let's break this down a little bit because you are going to all of these 19 ballparks, not by plane, not by car, but you are getting there by rail. And this is with the help of the Railway Passengers Association. So every year they put something together that's similar to this, and this year it's baseball. That's correct. Yeah, this is the third year they're doing it. Um, They did uh, one year with bikes. Um, in national parks, um, and they did last year. Uh, they talked. They had two uh, girls do it. Um, one was studying political science, and the other was studying engineering. And uh, the theme was building bridges, both literally and figuratively. So, <laughs> and now baseball. So, like you say, you are headed through to July the second. Give us an idea of what a typical day is like for you then. Yeah, sure. Um, so for starters, I'll wake up, um, try and figure out what city I'm in, um, and check my phone for the day's schedule. Uh, but I typically have a lot of interviews with people who are involved with, um, like, uh, transportation infrastructure in the different cities that I'm in. Uh, and so I'll talk to them about their plans for, like, streetcars or, like, uh, commuter rail or um, something like that. Toronto actually has a really good system, one of the better um more more extensive transportation systems of any of the cities that I visited. So, um, like, I'm doing a full tour of everything y'all have here uh, today. Is there anything that you have seen so far in terms of transportation that you say, wow, I wish every city had that? There is this new uh, passenger rail service in Florida, and it was at the very start of my journey, called Brightline. And it was one of the most luxurious experiences I've had on a train. Um and they really do a good job of um, providing you with, like, customer service. Like, um, they'll have snacks on the train, kind of like they do on the Via Rail here in Canada. Um, and then everyone's just super friendly. And as the train leaves the station, you just see all of the engineers and stuff waving at you enthusiastically. And it's just, it, it was a really fun experience. So, um, so yeah. We're talking with Jacob Wallace, who right now is on a 19-game of baseball journey through minor league parks, through major league parks, and all by train through the Railway Passengers Association. And he is in Toronto this weekend. Give us an idea of the differences if you go to, a say, a minor league game in the U.S. We hear they do all kinds of crazy stuff. Are they still doing all kinds of crazy stuff? Oh, sure. Yeah. So the uh, Savannah Bananas game that I went to, um, they have a live pep band that um, wanders through the stands during the course of the game. Um, They'll replace the first base coach with a dancer um, after a couple innings. And so in between swings, they'll just be wildly dancing there on the side. Um, They have a guy in a banana costume getting chased by a guy in a gorilla costume. it's, It's wild for sure. Could you, you know, could you see a time when some of that makes its way into major league parks, or is that just what makes minor league baseball special? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, you definitely see some of that sort of stuff in the major leagues, but I think uh, the reason it's so much more prevalent in the minor leagues is because uh, those minor league games are so much more focused on just um, the people in the stands having a good time. It's, I mean, you know, obviously the baseball of it is important, but it's also just kind of a uh, a community gathering spot um, for for the town. So I think that's why they tend to have more of that sort of show. Do you have a baseball team that you cheer for at the major league level? Uh, yeah, so I have two now. Um, so I grew up in Dallas, Texas. So the Texas Rangers are near and dear to my heart. 
Um, and now I go to school in Washington, D.C., and uh, the Nationals are a good team. It's hard not to root for them. So I, my allegiances are a little split, but I try to tell anyone in those two cities. And what do you know, you're going to be taking in a Nationals-Blue Jays game this weekend. Don't worry, Canadian fans, Canadian fans are okay. You, if you want to cheer for the Nationals, you'll be able to do that and you shouldn't get too many dirty looks. Oh, that is such a relief because I'm a big advocate of rooting for the home team on these trips, but it's it's hard not for me to root for the Nationals when I see them. So Yeah, you, you, you should be okay. I don't want to say absolutely everybody's <laughs> going to turn around and smile if Washington's winning by a whole lot of runs, but you should be fairly safe in all of this. Where are you off to next? Uh, yeah, so after this, I head off to Chicago. Good, good. And then eventually you make your way all the way across the U.S. and then dip back up to Vancouver? Yeah, that's correct. So I'll um, go briefly north on an Amtrak train uh, to Vancouver. Where I'll see the Vancouver, uh, I think it's the Canadians, is uh, the minor league team there. It is. Um, and it'll be, yeah, yeah. And that'll be July 1st, which I hear is a, uh, an important time of year for Canada. It's kind of like July 4th, maybe maybe just smaller <laughs> fireworks shows, and we don't tend sure. to take four days off. Usually it's it's just that one, or if we can tie it to a weekend, that tends to work out too. But you'll have a good time. What are you noticing being on the train? Because that's a way to travel that sometimes you know maybe goes underappreciated. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, and I think that it's interesting to see how much um, local investment and support for these trains really affects the overall experience. Like, for instance, I was just on a route in Michigan um, where the state bought up a significant portion of the track recently, um, and they're working to update it, and the train goes faster there now. Um, and there's really a sense that this is an important thing for them, and so they're going to make it a priority to make sure that the experience on those trains is a good time. And I'd say overall, um, I've had good experiences, you know, and uh, I have been really surprised both at the level of comfort and the variety of people I've been able to meet on the train. So it's been a really, really nice experience for sure. If somebody wanted to follow along anywhere, can they do that? Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, so we've got Twitter and Instagram that I'm running. Um, that's at Rail Passengers. And then on top of that, I'm updating a blog daily as well, and that's um, summerbyrail.com. Excellent. Well, Jacob, again, welcome to Canada. Enjoy Toronto this weekend. Enjoy the Jays game, and best of luck through the rest of the trip. Hey, thank you so much. I appreciate talking to you. Jacob Wallace, Summer by Rail. That's what he's doing. Sometimes you envision trips like that, but it's tough to put together. I mean, in this case... He's doing it, and it's kind of a summer job for him. He'll be okay in Toronto, don't you think? You can cheer against the Blue Jays. We don't want you to, but if you're a Nationals fan and you're catching your team on the road, eh, should work out. Nobody will dump beer over his head, right? It's always that one guy, isn't there? Well, we wish him the best of luck through all of this. Rob Ford, or uh, sorry, Doug Ford has already decided what he wants to do first when he becomes Premier of Ontario. And we'll tell you what that is 
after Matt Trevithick and news. And then still to come, we are going to be joined by Luke Wilson, who is a Detroit Lions tight end. He's in London today. We'll find out why. And after 2 o'clock, we will be hearing from Declan Hill, and he's a guy that you don't want to miss. We talked with him a few weeks ago when we were looking at match-fixing in tennis and even a little match-fixing in soccer. He has a unique thought as to what helped Canada, the United States, and Mexico to get the World Cup in 2026, and he'll share that with us, among other things. So that comes up after 2 o'clock. It is a beautiful day. Look up if you are downtown because you'll see Rope for Hope as we see all kinds of people making their way down where we are right now inside in in terms of uh, of where our offices are. So if you know where the, the TD Towers are, yeah, that's, that's us. So they are making their way down, and that is for Rope for Hope in support of Make-A-Wish Foundation. News is next with Matthew Travis. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Doug Ford has decided what he wants to do as his government gets set to go. What do you think? Will it be the beer thing? That would make sense on a Friday. No, not the beer thing. Not buck of beer. It appears as though the first thing he wants to do is number the days, these are his words, number the days of the carbon tax in Ontario. He said, quote, Upon the swearing-in of my new cabinet at the top of our agenda, the very first item will be to pass an order to cancel the liberal cap-and-trade carbon tax. And the other thing he's going to do is challenge what the federal government is doing regarding carbon pricing, And if we go back to the campaign, it was estimated that would cost about $30 million over four years to challenge that. So what this will do is not create buck a beer, but it will take off 10 cents on gas prices. Now, the question is, there is money that comes from the cap and trade system and the carbon tax that we have. Where does that? then come from and he hasn't explained it he's basically said this is what they're going to do and he's going to name his cabinet and those sorts of things so that's where we have to listen for the second half of this story how does this shake out and hey do i want 10 cents off the price of the pumps absolutely that would be fantastic and he says he wants to do that but what does it mean overall Well, that part of it has not been spelled out. Will it be spelled out? I don't know. I mean, governments always like to think they're transparent. Governments always like to be transparent. Governments are rarely transparent. But that appears to be the first order of business from Doug Ford as he gets set to take over the helm of this province. Does anybody own a waterbed anymore? I want to, if you own a waterbed, or have owned one even in the past decade. You have to tell us. I don't even know if you can buy one anymore. I want to get to a story on this next. And then, still coming up before our next news break, we're going to hear from Luke Wilson, tight end of the Detroit Lions, won a Super Bowl with the Seattle Seahawks. He's in London today. How come? Well, we'll tell you. And we will also talk a little football. This is London Live. My name is Mike Stubbs. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. All right, just shuffling some things around. We are going to be able to talk with Dave Phillips in just a moment from Environment Canada. 
Do you find that whenever we hear about a tornado, it always comes down in the same place? And, hey, this storm that we got this past week, remember the Wednesday one? That wasn't supposed to be as big as it actually was. So he'll fill us in on why that is. And we may talk with Luke Wilson just after news. He's in town, but he's just finishing things up. So just shuffling a couple things around on a Friday. If you own a waterbed... I don't even know if you can any. Are they even legal anymore? You have to let us know. Email Mike at 980CFPL.ca because there is a company that is hoping to bring back the waterbed. Remember waterbeds? They're all right. They're not Hydro's best friend because you can't really unplug them. They get awfully cold. So more on that story in just a minute. But let's welcome David Phillips of Environment Canada to the show. David, how are things? Hi, Mike. Nice to be with you. Great to have you here. Uh, This storm this past week, it wasn't supposed to be as severe as it was. Now we're seeing, and we just heard from Matt Trevithick, that we had an F1 tornado out of this. What's going on? Yeah, you know, Mike, it it was a it was a nasty one. I mean, no question about it. I mean, I think it was well forecasted. Uh, we saw it coming later in the afternoon, mid afternoon to later, and of course, at that time of the day, you got a lot more energy. I mean, temperatures got up to in parts of Ontario about twenty seven, twenty eight, twenty nine degrees. So, and there was humidity, humidity too. So there was a lot of fuel there, and then of course, uh, right near near the Great Lakes, and there's an element there, Mike, that uh, helps to trigger those areas a little bit more than other areas and of course at the heat of the day and then a cold front comes through uh, uh, across the uh, the Great Lakes and boom it kind of pushes all that warm humid air upwards gives it a little kind of a lift and uh, and you get some wild winds some uh, nickel-sized hail heavy rains but yes you're right there were a couple of uh, tornadoes they weren't major ones but they were certainly uh, EF1 I mean it can even be EF0 so this one was a little bit more uh, winds about 160 kilometers per hour and we went out there to look at the damage because you know it could be a microburst it could be some kind of a straight line wind but hey we're looking for that twisting kind of chaotic kind of debris and there it was uh, a couple of uh, of barns uh, i mean branches like javelins just tossed right through uh, uh, through buildings and uh, it was uh, yeah it was nobody hurt but hey there was uh, some wild weather there at the moment When you do go out looking for things that give you the evidence that a tornado has touched down, you mentioned branches like javelins and and damage. What's it like being a weather forecaster walking around an area like that? Well, it's it's sort of like doing an autopsy, you know. You kind of just uh, re- reconstruct the the scene. You have back in the office, you have the radar, you have the uh, satellite um, uh, images, uh, you have reports coming in from severe weather watchers. So you got a lot of kind of information. But boy, on the ground truth information is really helps because you know sometimes uh, the same kind of a windstorm can produce uh, uh, the same result in terms of bringing down 
on structures. And, you know, we don't do it for insurance reasons, Mike. It's not, there's nothing about uh, uh, trying to figure out is it a microburst or a plow wind or a straight line wind or a, or a twister of what category. It's, it's really meant for the science to say, well, gee, okay, we do have evidence that this wasn't just uh, a straight line wind. Uh, it was actually, or not a microburst, but it was actually a tornado that had touched down. And in this case, it was a, a track was about 30 kilometers, and that's another thing we want to hear. And, uh, and then the width of it, we can look at the damage. And just sort of doing a, an assessment of the damage field gives us sort of, sort of uh, we can reconstruct the storm and, uh, and get a sense. Now, this one just hops, got, and, and jumped right across the landscape. So it was kind of intermediate, uh, intermediate damage. It wasn't just sort of hugging the ground and staying put, or else the damage would have perhaps been a little bit more. Sort of, it's sort of just almost like an atmospheric terrorist. It's just sort of here, there, and everywhere. And, uh, and we saw the results of that whenever it did touch down. You got those winds of uh, 160 kilometers per hour, and uh, hey, not a lot of structures can, can withstand that. And so we analyzed the, the damage, and that what that tells us, Mike, too, is the, the strength of that beast. And, uh, and so we got it all, and then we can say, hey, next time we get a similar kind of signature on the radar, uh, it might just give us a little bit more sense as, okay, that's probably more of a tornado than a microburst. David Phillips from Environment Canada. David, one last thing, and that yeah. is we're always seemingly suggesting that storms are becoming more fierce and the idea that the Earth's temperature warming may make them more fierce. Any evidence of anything like that? Well, I think with, Mike, it's a good question, and certainly there's, there's fuel. I don't think with tornadoes. I think that the, the fact that we see storms are maybe a little stormier, uh, hurricanes may be a little stronger because of uh, uh, some energy that maybe human beings kind of contribute. I mean, it's never, you can never say that storm was coming out of our tailpipes and smokestacks. Uh, that's not really the, the, the way to answer that or, or ask that. But it, it, there's everything that, that contributes to that particular storm. But um, certainly, Mike, you know, if you looked at the fact that there seems to be more, and that's just because there's more people watching. With social networking, you know, the, the uh, atmosphere can burp without us knowing about it. And, you know, the more you educate people about the weather, it seems the more, the more weather you get. People are taking pictures and they're chasing them. And, and so there seems to be a lot more when, in fact, you know, we're just not so sure that is the, the case. We think that storms are a little stronger in some of the big storms, but little, little guys like microbursts or, or uh, tornadic winds, we're not sure. There's another thing in the Great Lakes, Mike, that is kind of interesting. That lake breeze, that actually gives us a little bit more of an oomph to that, to that heat and humidity. And so that's why we have this, as we often call, Little Tornado Alley between uh, Lake Huron and Lake Erie. Uh, there's just a little bit of these kind of uh, stack the, the deck to give you a little bit more chance of getting those kind of, uh, of severe weather events. And that's sort of like uh, something homegrown in our, own, uh, in our own province. Well, so far the forecast is calling for warm and humid toward the end oh, of the weekend. Who knows? We may get another one of these. certain tank top kind of weekend, Mike. <laughs> David, thanks for your time. Okay, bye-bye now. <laughs> bye-bye. That is David Phillips from Environment Canada. As we do find out that, yes, there was an F1 tornado, and it did do damage. Now, 
It didn't do damage to an awful lot of things, a barn, some trees, and it was technically a tornado, but as David says, you can have an F-Zero, so it's not like it was, whoa, we had a tornado touchdown around here. We're little Tornado Alley, and hopefully we can remain that way. You don't want to become big Tornado Alley. You, whenever you're talking tornadoes, if you can use the word little near them, if they're going to be near you, that's a good thing. That's exactly what you want. One last thing before we take a quick break, and then what we're going to do, we didn't get a chance to talk yesterday about Canada at the World Cup in 2026 and the idea that it's not a slam dunk, a guarantee that Canada will be able to participate in the tournament. And we'll fill you in on why that is. Now, pretty good chance? Sure. Absolutely. 100%? No. It's kind of like Mo Salah, who plays for Egypt, who had said, well, he was nearly 100% sure that he would play. He didn't play today. So it's kind of like that. Nearly 100% sure? Yeah, okay. But it still might not happen. So we'll fill you in on that. But I do want to give you the rest of the story on the waterbed. Hall Flotation is a company, and it is out of San Francisco, and they are trying to bring back the waterbed. I don't know when the last time was that I saw a waterbed. And waterbeds waterbeds are rough for sleeping if the power goes out because that thing gets cold in a hurry. Uh, nothing is stickier, it seems, than a waterbed. You know how sometimes in the middle of the night you roll over and, and you're flat on your face? Yeah, good luck getting that face up off that bed in the morning. And if you are under the age of two, waterbeds, not the greatest thing, because you could be sitting on the waterbed and somebody else sits down, poof, you're off the side. So I don't know if this is going to happen, but they've got the idea, and they have now put together a waterbed manufacturing company, and they're hoping people want to sleep on waterbeds all over again. They have said that they have a new and improved waterbed, and that they're really they're there will be more padding, I guess. I don't know. I don't think anybody's going to go for this. Would you buy a waterbed? We'll talk about why Canada may or may not have a team in the actual World Cup of Soccer in 2026. And Portugal and Spain are getting set. Lini Lambrink from our 980 CFPL newsroom, I believe, is headed over to catch up with some fans of Portugal at some point. You'll probably hear that after 3 o'clock. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Spain and Portugal set to go at the World Cup. We will update you on that as we go along. Big story this week, and we'll be talking about it after news is that Canada will be one of the hosts of the 2026 World Cup of Soccer. Declan Hill is going to join us. He's the author of a couple of books. One is The Fix, and it talks about him infiltrating a match-fixing ring and seeing how it is that they do it. And we'll ask him that question. You have 23 human beings on a pitch at a time. How do you fix that? Last time we talked to him, we were talking about tennis. Well, you can fix tennis. It's the third set. You're winning. All of a sudden, ah, my hamstring hurts. And Declan made a really good point. He said, 2,500 professional tennis players in the world, about 500 of them make money. The other 2,000 are hoping one day to do that. So fixes, yeah, they happen. Do they happen in soccer? Well, we had some referees given the boot before they even got there because they were alleged to have taken bribes. 
So that's a problem. But here's an issue that we want to make quite clear. Christian Davino is producing the show today, and Christian follows soccer like I've never seen anyone follow soccer before. And, Christian, I was looking and saying, well, hey, if you go back through every single host, it seems that you host a World Cup, you get to play in the World Cup. Russia's doing it this year. They've been playing friendlies, basically. They didn't even have to qualify. Brazil was the same. South Africa was the same. So Canada. Canada's going to be able to put a, a team on the pitch in 2026? More than likely, yes. But you can blame the 2002 World Cup that was hosted by both Japan and South Korea for the real changes. Basically, it's going to come down to a vote. Um, and that won't happen anytime soon. This vote could happen in the next four years sometime. Um, essentially what happens is at the start of every World Cup, this is like FIFA is basically like a giant city council. They hold a Congress throughout the course of the entire tournament and they vote through a bunch of different things. So on Wednesday we saw Canada, the unity bid uh, being passed. That's all that happened. That's all we know about that bid. We know that we're going to host a World Cup. Nothing else is for sure yet. Nothing else is for sure. So nearly 100%, but not 100%. But in 2026, they go to 48 countries being involved. Shouldn't that help? That See, even that we don't know yet. That so may that not has happen? To be, that has to be voted on. There has to be the 48-team format that has to be voted on. Um, we have so many other things. The 60-10-10 uh, format that the United States holds 60 games, that could all change. Canada can get one game if they really wanted to. <laughs> Make it that way, right? So everything is up for change apart from we're hosting World Cup. And this vote will take place sometime... Before the next World Cup. Before it, the it next World Cup. It will take place probably in 2022. Okay, but in terms of, of that 2026, that's when everything would be known? We don't have to wait until 2025 necessarily? We'll know right, right before the next World Cup. But no guarantee no that guarantee. Canada participates as a country. More than likely they will, simply because it's just tradition. Um, and it's it's just a thing that they vote on. 2002, what happened is every team was making it in that host of the World Cup and also the championship winners, the World Cup winners of the previous year. So we had France automatically qualify, and then we had South Korea and Japan. And at the time, I think we still had a 24-format team. So a lot of people were kind of upset at that since they lost a lot of qualification spots and they're like okay let's maybe make the rules a little different now so they eliminated the world cup winners automatically qualifying so now it's just down to a vote so votes but don't worry everybody who takes part in these votes yeah they they're always known for being completely squeaky clean right huh well just a second that's one of the things we're going to get into after we hear from Matt Trevithick and after he brings us news. We'll talk with Declan Hill. We are also due to be joined by Detroit Lions tight end Luke Wilson, who is in London, and we'll line up what the weekend is going to be like at the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. Their induction ceremony is tomorrow at 1 o'clock. This is London Live on a Friday. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Crazy things are already happening between Portugal and Spain. Cristiano Ronaldo... Taken down, awarded a penalty kick, scored 1-0, Portugal leads Spain. That came at the 2:22 minute, if you want to count seconds in soccer. It was in the third minute. 
So they continue on. We get an opportunity to talk with somebody who, who knows, this guy's as talented as, a, uh, as an athlete as you can find. Signed with the Blue Jays. He's already won a Super Bowl. Now with the Detroit Lions. And in town today, Canada's own Luke Wilson joins us. Luke, how are things? Uh, doing great, man. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for being here. Let's talk jumpstart because you're a guy who played multi-sports growing up, and that's never a, a an inexpensive thing to do. Getting involved in jumpstart, how was that important to you? You know, it's important for me. Uh, obviously, jumpstart's done a tremendous job over the past decade plus of giving kids an opportunity uh, to participate in a variety of different sports. And, you know, sports was such a big part of my life uh, growing up that it was one of those things where as much as I can do to give back or, uh, you know, kind of share my experiences with somebody else, uh, that that's something that I'd take pride in. So, um, again, Jumpstart really gives a lot of different kids opportunities to uh, have a great – be active and have great opportunities to do these <clears throat> these different sports. Well, we've got to say hi to everybody from Trafalgar Public School, from Ealing, from C.C. Carruthers, from Aberdeen. They were all there from the Jumpstart Games. I don't know. Did you find anybody who looks like a, a good NFL tight end someday? You know what? The kids are a little young to be uh, crowding them as future NFL tight ends, but there were definitely some athletic kids out here that looked like they had a good time. Um, so hopefully they had some fun. Hey, well, that's fantastic. Let's talk about you because you are somebody who, again, played more than one sport growing up, had a shot at, at maybe going the baseball route, certainly had a shot at the football route. How did you end up making that decision? You know, it, people ask me that all the time. It was a little tough in the sense of it wasn't like I liked football better than baseball or vice versa. It was uh, a bit of a timing thing. Um, the baseball, I played my whole life, but with baseball, I'd probably played a little more serious kind of later in high school, specifically grade 12. And I had already committed to rice and was pretty set on playing football. And then the same thing kind of happened. I had went through, played football in college. And when I signed with the blue Jays, I, you know, I was years behind if, of where most minor league guys were. And, uh, it was one of those things where I was six months away from potentially being drafted to the NFL or maybe six years if I make it through the minors. So that was a pretty easy choice at that point. Luke Wilson is with us on London Live. Tight end for the Detroit Lions. We'll get to the move to Detroit in just a little bit, but we've got to go back to your rookie season because you start in the NFL as a first-year player, and all of a sudden there you are on a team that that's doing phenomenal things going all the way, not just to the Super Bowl, winning the Super Bowl in a blowout. When you go back to that season right now, can you slow it down in your mind at all to kind of pick out a few moments or is it still the blur that it was? You know what? It was a special year. Uh, we had a great team. I remember <clears throat> obviously it was my first training camp, but uh, even being in training camp, just the talent level on that team was tremendous. It's a very good mix of stars and role players and a lot of veteran leaders. So looking back on it, you know, you take it for granted when you're a rookie, but it was very special, and there's a, a lot of moments from that year that really stuck out. What exactly do you think about? What Give us one of those moments. You know, I think the winning the Super Bowl, I know it's pretty obvious, but one of the cool things I've mentioned a few times is you're allowed to have, or at least at that time, I don't know if it's still like this, but you're allowed to have two people on the field. Um, my 
mom and dad came down, you know, Michael Strahan had the Lombardi trophy. I can remember confetti coming down. Uh, I always joke my dad, he was bright eyed and bushy tailed out there. So I was, I was dying laughing, but to kind of share that moment with them and, you know, they've been supportive of my whole life. So much as a thank you for everything they've done for me was, uh, was pretty special. Luke Wilson with us. Sometimes if you're a first-year player, you'll play in the Super Bowl. You might get on for some special teams. That might be it. You caught passes. Catching a pass in a Super Bowl, is it harder than any other pass you had ever caught? <laughs> no. Um, honestly, Coach Carroll did a great job my whole time there of uh, really preaching that you know every game is no different than another. Every practice you know, you, especially at that level, you've got to be focused in and ready to go. So he made it seem like, hey, if we go out and execute, do our thing, we'll make, we'll win this game. And I mean, that's obviously what happened. There wasn't a lot of like, hey, this is the Super Bowl, we got to play better or, or do anything different than what we had done all year. Luke Wilson, tight end for the Detroit Lions. Let's talk about that because you're a guy who is from LaSalle, and it's not very often that a Canadian can make it to the National Football League. It's probably a bigger long shot that that Canadian winds up playing as close to home as he possibly can. You go to Detroit. Talk about the move. Yeah, uh, as far as the hometown proximity, it's been uh, really neat. You know, I didn't go to college in town, so it's the longest I've been in in the Windsor area since I was probably 18, which has been awesome. Um, You know, see family and uh, experience, you know, it's just little things you kind of miss. But that being said, uh, you know, it didn't really play a huge factor into me going into Detroit. Um, Excited to go out there and, and, you know, prove to the coaches, what I can do, and I think we got a great uh, a great team, and we'll see when train, train camp comes around. Were you a I hate to ask this, but were you a Lions fan growing up because of the proximity to? I was. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was diehard. I was uh, going out as Barry Sanders for Halloween, which is somehow so not somehow, but uh, has made it to social media and really been blown up. So uh, a little embarrassed about that. But I was a big Lions fan growing up. I can remember sitting on the couch on Sunday mornings and, or Sunday afternoons and, and watching them play at the Pontiac Silverdome. So it's been cool and a bit nostalgic in that sense. How old were you when you were Barry Sanders for Halloween, or did you just do it for every year? Uh, I think I might have done it twice. I want to say somewhere in the range of, of age range of uh, 7 to 10-ish, somewhere in there. And now you're in London today for Canadian Tire Jumpstart. What do you think? If, if anybody wanted to go out for Halloween as Luke Wilson, would you would you be able to help them out? You know, if anyone wants to go to Halloween as me, I'd definitely be able to help them out. There's no doubt about that. Now, equipment-wise, I'm probably going to be a little, uh, you know, my shoes are probably a little too big. Same thing with the gloves, but... I could point him in the right direction for sure. Well, look forward to seeing what happens with the Lions this year. There are an awful lot of Lions fans in this area. Luke, thanks so much for bringing Jumpstart to London. Yeah, no, thank you uh, for having me. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye now. That is Luke Wilson, Detroit Lions tight end from LaSalle, already a Super Bowl champion, and helping out all kinds of kids. 18,000 kids across Canada are able to play sports thanks to Jumpstart, which helps out kids who maybe couldn't afford to do that on their own. Coming up, we are going to talk with Declan Hill, and he is one of those guests that that you just want to keep hearing from because he tells stories that leave you saying, no, that's, that's not true, and then he shows you the evidence. 
And then he'll say something. You think, that can't be. And then he shows you the evidence. He's next, talking about FIFA and the World Cup. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Still 1-0 Portugal as we follow along the World Cup today. We're going to talk some World Cup soccer, but even if you're not a soccer fan, even if you're not a sports fan, there are stories that you just think, wow, that can't be how it works. Well, our next guest has all kinds of evidence contained in two books, as a matter of fact, that there are things like match fixing, that... There are things like, we saw it last week, referees who take bribes. These things happen. Well, how about getting the World Cup of Soccer in 2026? Why don't we get Declan Hill's thoughts on that? He's the author of The Fix, and he is somebody who has spent his life as an investigative journalist. We're lucky enough to have him with us right now. Declan, let's begin with the awarding of the World Cup to basically North America, Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. And kind of the the big announcement of that, what do you make of the announcement? Uh, I think the, the primary decision among the 200 FIFA uh, national soccer associations that voted for it uh, or voted on that decision was how do we get the FBI off our backs? Uh, what happened a couple of years ago was that uh, the U.S. Uh, Department of Justice, along with the FBI, successfully prosecuted dozens of senior FIFA executives. And there was a sense inside the organization that runs World Soccer, hey, if we don't give the Americans what they want, uh, this investigation is going to go on and more of us will be arrested. So it was a really, uh, you know, all the stuff about stadiums and TV rights and all this stuff growing the game was was really of very little importance. What was important was getting the FBI to stop investigating them. I knew you would have an amazing thought on this. That is incredible. You think that that played a major role? Uh, I, I think it was probably the, the primary role. Uh, most of the other stuff that you read about the FIFA decision is just nonsense. And and again, for, for, for our listeners that don't know the FIFA world, it really is Alice going down the rabbit hole. It's a bizarre, bizarre world. But, you know, they do these things called technical decisions where they, you know, they look at the stadium build, they look at all that stuff. And it's an open, openly discussed inside the world of FIFA that nobody looks at those technical bids. Nobody looks at those presentations um, there are famous soccer players, famous celebrities that are involved with various bids. They're just paid. You know, those guys get, or women as well, get paid to say, hey, Morocco would be a great World Cup site, or, uh, you know, America, Mexico, Canada would be a great World Cup site. So most of that is, is irrelevant as far as the presidents of the National Soccer Associations are concerned. And there are some uh, National Soccer Associations, far more than people might imagine, uh, who are deeply corrupt, and they are worried about the FBI, and they're saying, hey, if we vote for America uh, and the, the World Cup is in America, are we risking our arrest if we go there? Or if we don't give it to the Americans and give it to Morocco, um, you know, are they going to be angry and, and pursue this investigation? So that was a major, major decision in probably 80 to 90 of the countries who were voting. But you would think that the FBI is the FBI. They're going to go through with an investigation if there is an investigation to go through with, wouldn't they? Uh, 
Uh, no, not really. It's it's a it's a, a, a political jurist, uh, you know, fight between them and the U.S. State Department. Um, again, stepping back for listeners who don't know the story, because it's a pretty extraordinary story, unprecedented in international sport. Uh, 2015, 41 of the senior executives that ran soccer um, from the tip of uh, Latin America all the way up to Canada uh, inside FIFA were arrested in a series of dawn raids. Uh, 27 of those guys have been convicted, and they've been convicted under a racketeering a system of laws called RICO, deliberately designed to entrap um, and bring down mafia-like organizations like the Russian mob or the five great families, Genovese of New York, etc. It was recognized in the uh, Southern District of New York, the biggest anti-organized uh, crime um, courthouse judicial system in the world, that FIFA was an organized crime syndicate. So that's the level that we're talking about. We're well beyond allegations. We're well beyond, you know, tales. This is, you know, substantive legal proof that this is a very shady organization. We're talking with Declan Hill, author of The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime, author of The Insider's Guide to Match Fixing in Football. And right off the bat, you've given us a whole lot to chew on, but at the same time, Is there any getting away from what FIFA is now? Is there any fixing some of this stuff, or is it just the way it's always going to be? Uh, I think it's the way it's going to be, uh, at least in the near near future. Uh, There was a series of elections after those dawn raids, after... 41 of their senior people were, were, were arrested by FBI and Swiss uh, Organized Crime Task Force. Um, uh, and it really hasn't, hasn't changed fundamentally. Uh, there was an investigation, a fantastic undercover investigation by our colleagues in Ghana that showed uh, last week uh, with them and the BBC how much of African soccer is, is deeply corrupt. And they were bribing, they were offering payments to some of the referees in Africa that were going to go to the World Cup and referee World Cup soccer games this week. Uh, those referees have subsequently been thrown off the, the roster. But, but you see how easily really senior people in international soccer are corrupted. So um, the decision to award the World Cup to our country, Canada, along with the U.S. and Mexico, I I think soccer fans like myself should go, this is great, love to see lots of good soccer, but we want to make sure that our taxpayers' dollar is not going to inflate the salaries, to inflate the secret payoffs inside the organized crime syndicate that is FIFA. And we just, we hope... In that instance, we we hope that 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 doesn't happen. Is there anything we can do about that? I think I think discussions like this are very very important because what you'll see um, is a whole bunch of uh, uh, you know officials and bureaucrats talking about the beautiful game and how soccer is wonderful and blah blah blah. Look, I love soccer. So do many of our listeners. Um, but we've got to hold the line here and say, hey, listen, this is our taxpayers' dollar. What value are we getting here? Uh, you know, how are we how are we getting value back for our dollar? And is this money going simply to inflate the coffers of FIFA? So those are the questions I think voters and taxpayers should now be looking at. Um, you know, it, it, it's no coincidence there were only two candidates to host this World Cup. Uh, our our country with a joint bid was one. 
We're talking with Declan Hill, author of The Insider's Guide to Match Fixing in Football, author of The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime, an investigative journalist who has infiltrated gambling rings in the past. Here we go. We we have the World Cup of 2018. It's in Russia. The world is excited. Everybody, even non-soccer fans, tend to yep, at least yep. pay some attention. There are people who can't wait to see what is going to unfold do we believe that what is unfolding is is up and up? Is is everything okay? Have they gotten rid of all the referees that, that might be trying to maybe turn matches one way or another? Is there a chance that this year has something untoward about it? Oh, oh gosh, yes. Uh, there will be. And, and again, to listeners who don't know my work and don't know this story, please, I, 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 I strongly suggest you go and Google after we, uh, we finish this interview, because the story truly is extraordinary. And the, the level of corruption at international soccer has been well proven, has been well shown. Um, it, it, it's seriously substantiated. So the question is, will there be fixed matches? Uh, will there be bribery? Will there be attempts to corrupt the World Cup? Um, there certainly will be attempts to corrupt the World Cup. Uh, I'm just finishing a major piece for a European media outlet. Uh, it launches tomorrow, but your listeners and yourself get a get a, a, a pretaste of it. That the world that the, some of the fixers connected with the gang that I infiltrated a number of years ago will be back in Russia. They will be approaching players, teams, coaches, uh, referees. Will they affect the big games? No. Will they affect? Uh, will they try to affect? One, two, three, four of those 64 matches that we will watch, yes, they will. And the, the, the troubling thing, and which returns to our overarching theme of FIFA corruption, is that it's actually very easy to stop those guys. There will be players at this World Cup in Russia who will not get paid a dime for playing at that World Cup. And this is the world's biggest sporting tournament. It's massive, and there will be many teams excuse me, many players from sub-Saharan Africa, from former Soviet countries, will be ripped off by their national soccer officials, and they will be right pickings for the fixers. Declan, we've got a break for news, so we'll do that, but when we come back from news, I want to continue this conversation, and I want to ask the question that we'd wondered about earlier on in the show, where if you say tennis like we talked about last time, and you say that there is match-fixing in tennis, it's easier to figure it out because you've got two people, and one fakes an injury, as you alluded to last time we spoke, and there you go. There's there's your fix. It's pretty easy to take care of. In soccer, you've got 23 people on the pitch, a referee, 11 on one side, 11 on the other. Fixing something seems a whole lot more difficult, so I, I want to talk more about that if we could. We can update you right now in the Portugal-Spain match that is going on. These two were drawn into the same group, and they meet in their first match for each of them at the World Cup. And two minutes in, Cristiano Ronaldo was fouled, got a penalty kick, and scored, and made it one to nothing for Portugal, and then he went flying down the wing again and tried to cross a ball toward the net, and it was blocked. Next thing you know, Diego Costa of Spain is flying back the other way, and he makes this nifty little move and scores, and it's 1-1. So things are maybe a little quieter at King of the Pigs right now. If you're anywhere near King of the Pigs, they've been very, very excited about 
today's match. Now Spain has a free kick from just outside the box, and we'll see whether or not they can make good on that. So this match is not disappointing. If someone offers you at some point this weekend to watch a replay of Iran and Morocco, it's better just to go to the fridge, take out the margarine, and stare at that for 90 minutes. That You'll get way more out of it than you will from watching that match. But we'll wait to see. The penalty was blocked, by the way. Or, the, sorry, the free kick was blocked. The penalty was made good by Cristiano Ronaldo earlier. Diego Costa scored for Spain, and it's 1-1. We will come back with more from Declan Hill after Matt Trevithick and News on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We are talking with Declan Hill, author of The Fix and The Insider's Guide to Match Fixing, an investigative journalist who has infiltrated match-fixing rings and has come away with all kinds of information and evidence. And if you missed it, Declan had been talking just after 2 o'clock about the fact that the FBI would have, in his mind, factored into the decision to award the World Cup in 2026 to Canada, the U.S., and Mexico because of arrests that the FBI had made of FIFA officials. So that's an interesting slant. The other interesting slant that we want to talk about, and Declan, let's get into this right now, is the idea that you have 23 people on the pitch at a given time in soccer. And everybody might be wondering, how are you supposed to affect the outcome of a game in the way that someone in a dark alley wants you to? <laughs> Brother, listen, uh, there, have been, uh, there have been matches where the fixers had both teams, the referees, the lines people, and the coaches in on the fix. I mean, they were, they were in the dressing rooms at halftime calling the fix, telling the players, okay, the gambling market is saying this, so we're, we're going to make more money if you do the following. One of you guys get a red card, get sent off. You know, like the coach was sitting down taking instructions from the fixers. Now, fair play, that did not happen at the World Cup, but it did happen in major international soccer tournaments. So this is a serious and, and systemic problem in, in international sport. Now, um, as you and I were discussing a couple of weeks ago, there's a major issue in international tennis. The problem at the World Cup of Soccer is really easy to fix. Just pay all the players. Just just give them massive amounts of money. It's a massive tournament that generates billions of dollars in profit. Uh, and, you know, pay the players every time they score a goal, fifty thousand bucks, bam, in in cash. Every time a goalie uh, keeps a clean sheet, doesn't allow a thing, um, you know, a goal to be scored in, give them some money, hundred thousand bucks. I mean, this is really easy solutions. Um, uh, you know, for example, the referees that were caught taking bribes uh, by the BBC and African journalists last week—they were taking bribes of six hundred bucks. I mean, that—that—that's how desperate it gets very quickly in this world. You get really well-paid, um, high officials at FIFA and the national soccer associations, and then you get down to these referees and some players in some teams—not the big ones, not the Argentina, Brazil, England teams, but the other teams. Uh, and they're very poor people who are not being paid. And we have, in this particular World Cup, it seems quite a few of those countries. We don't have Italy there. We don't have the Netherlands there. We're missing some of those big teams, so would that maybe be something to look at? I I definitely know Nigeria and Senegal, uh, sub-Saharan African teams, have, uh, uh, have that kind of perfect storm. They have excellent players. 
like fantastic players, and they have deeply corrupted officials. And that is the problem, where you have players that are really, really good, that understand their value, understand what they're doing is difficult, and that they need to be rewarded, and are not being rewarded. In fact, they know that their rewards, their salaries, their bonuses are being stolen by their National Soccer Association. Let me give the listeners one example so they can see the concrete level of corruption. Nigeria was playing in the South Africa World Cup of 2010, so eight years ago. Um, They were booked to uh, play before the three biggest matches of their life into a five-star hotel, good training facilities, whatever. The Nigerian officials... Uh, brought in their wives, girlfriends, various hangers-on, discovered there wasn't, quote, enough room at the hotel for the players. So they kicked the players out of the luxury hotel and booked them at a cheap motel beside a a highway uh, and then took much of their salaries and put it in their own pockets. And then the Nigerian government was so upset with the performance because Nigeria did very badly at that World Cup. They had an official inquiry, and they discovered that many of the players you know, representing their country, wearing their shirts, uh, you know, playing a match before billions of people around the world, hadn't received their money and were staying in these cheap little motel, um, you know, beside the highway. That's how bad and endemic the corruption can be at the World Cup. Declan Hill with us, author of The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime, author of the Insider's Guide to Match Fixing in Football. Declan, just one more thing. Just People are probably wondering about being around some of the people who would be able to fix a match in soccer. Yep. What is it like to be in their midst? Well, look, uh, you know, obviously it's very frightening, but one of the things that's deeply ironic is that you can trust many of the fixers more than you can trust FIFA officials to pay you. So uh, one particular guy I was uh, around was a guy named Tan Sit Ng. He was uh, famous for fixing hundreds of uh, international soccer games. And if he promised to pay you 20000 bucks in cash, your biggest problem was how are you going to carry the 20000 bucks home? He would pay. He would come to your room or have one of his people come to your room and give you the cash. Um, that is not the... That is not the scenario in many countries in international soccer. Um, and, and I'm sure if there are people with experience of Africa, originally from Africa, uh, they'll be nodding along at this. They know how desperately corrupt the officials are and how they betray the players. Uh, and that is the fundamental problem of international soccer, is the betrayal of the players and the fans. Declan, once again, you've given us so much to think about. Thank you for your insight on this, and I can't wait to read what comes out tomorrow. Where can we find it? Uh, it's on a Danish site, Play the Game. I, I will be tweeting about it as well. I'll be explaining uh, which particular matches are susceptible um, and how uh, FIFA could have stopped this years ago. Uh, and I'll also be providing stories and um uh, uh, you know, anecdotes of 24 years of these guys being at World Cups and some of the matches that they targeted. All right. And you can find Declan's Twitter feed at Declan underscore Hill. So follow that now at Declan underscore Hill. Thank you so much. I hope we talk again soon. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Mike. Take care. You too. Declan Hill, author of The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime, and also author of The Insider's Guide to Match Fixing in Football. And Declan is is very open about this. I mean, 
he will say things like the corruption in FIFA and look at what he just said there, that sometimes the match fixers are more trustworthy than a FIFA official when it comes to paying someone their money. And you might think, no, that's, come on, come on, it can't be like this. We're talking about an organization that puts on the biggest sporting event in the world. Can't be like this. Declan is quite open. Look, just look, even just Google. Google things. The referees that he was talking about, the ones that were going to come from Africa and were going to work at the World Cup in Russia, and then were told, uh, no, there's alleged bribery going on here. You're not coming. And look what Declan said, just in case you missed it. $600 is what they were offered. 600 bucks. That's it. But when you are talking about impoverished nations, and a lot of times you have to look to government officials. You know, a lot's been made this week about Kim Jong-un and his new buddy Donald Trump. We've all seen the pictures of North Korea at night. Where's the light? It's right around where Kim Jong-un lives, and it's nowhere else. I mean, you've got countries, and they're not necessarily you know, the same type of impoverished country that some of the African nations are. It's, it's kind of a different scenario, obviously. But let's face it, we have some pretty desperate people, and we have people who are not afraid to say, ah, players, nah, this is for us. I didn't get to where I was to hand over money. That kind of stuff does go on. Go and look for it. 519-643-2222. Rail, you had a thought on this. You know, there's been two aspects of soccer for the last 30, 40 years that has bothered me no end. Firstly, the video replays. Finally, we're seeing it at the World Cup soccer for the first time. There's obviously been a reason why the officials, FIFA, didn't want video replays because that would stop the potential corruption. The second point is the time, the time clock. It's the only sport that that runs to the full time, and then they they guess uh, injury time, and then it's up to the ref. And what if the ref has been bribed or there's corruption? I've seen at least 10 games over the last few months, European games, that went well over the time, and it had nothing to do with, you know, uh, exchanging players or injuries. There's an opportunity for refs and the officials to do whatever they want. Uh, uh, before the video replay, they could just disallow a goal. And no one could do anything about it. There's the problem. The referees, the assistants, and the owners and officials. And in any of those matches that you were watching, did did they go on and on and on, and then one of the teams scored? Did that happen at all? You know, my wife calls me cynical, and I am. I get into things. But I pointed out to her at least three games where the match went on for at least 90 seconds when the game was tied or one team was ahead, and it would have made a huge difference. I mean, look at all the offsides and the goals that were either allowed or disallowed in this last season and the commentators would be so angry because there's no replay there's no reason why there couldn't have been replays but there's a big reason the corruption and i think uh, we will find out in due course that there's been huge corruption in soccer it's the only reason 
it's the only sport that don't have the replay and the only sport where the, the time runs out instead of working backwards or coming to a definite decision that everyone agrees with. Great points. Real thanks. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the World Cup. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> Portugal has just scored again. They're up 2-1 on Spain. It's a big weekend at the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. They have their induction ceremonies this weekend, and we'll outline everything for you if you want to make the trip to St. Mary's. It's a pretty special time. That's next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. This weekend in St. Mary's, the inductions to the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame are going to take place. And this is always a sensational event. The two players going in this weekend are Pedro Martinez. He's not going to be there. Uh, We'll get to that in just a moment. And Lloyd Mosby. So congratulations to both of them. One played for the Montreal Expos. One played for the Toronto Blue Jays. And when you look at their contributions, they stretch all over the place. And it's pretty amazing to to be able to have our, our own little piece of Canadian baseball. And you haven't, if you haven't visited, you have to visit. William Humber also going in. Joining us is Scott Crawford from the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame to outline things for us this weekend. Scott, how are you? Great, Mike. How are you today? Not too bad. I, I hear just a, a little, little bit of exertion in your voice. Sounds like you've been lifting and moving things. <laughs> Well, we got the big, big weekend this this uh, starting today, and we got uh, the tents and the picnic tables and the chairs, and we're we're all getting ready to go here. Lots of lifting, lots of moving, honoring William Humber, honoring Lloyd Mosby, honoring Pedro Martinez. One thing that people are going to find out if they haven't already is, sadly, Pedro Martinez isn't going to be able to attend this weekend. Exactly. Um, he's got some personal medical issues that have come up, and his doctors have advised him no uh, no traveling for the next few days, and so that takes him out of this weekend. We're still going to honor him, but you're right, Pedro, unfortunately, won't be here this weekend. Still, he has such a big smile. You know what? If we know what direction he's in, I'm sure we can look that way and you'll be able to see it. Yeah, for sure. He, he feels so bad, but he's got to take his doctor's advice and, and stay where he is and and uh, but you know it's it's going to be great. We're going to miss him dearly, of course, as will lots of other people. But uh, you know he's we're still honoring his great career. We know the names Pedro Martinez and Lloyd Mosby, but let's start with William Humber and his contributions to baseball. Yeah, again, like you said, the other two names are very household, and and William isn't. But if you if you go to the history of Canadian baseball, you'll find his name all over the the history books he's written. The stories he's told, the documents he's he's been involved with, um, he he's who we ask when we don't know the answer about something in baseball history. So he's he's the man. That's not bad. What do you think drives him toward the sport? What is it that he loves about it so much? He he loves the history and, and the passion for it and the tradition for it. He's he's just driven to the you know the old style game. Um, you know, all the records and the history and the great players and the great ballparks and the stories. Baseball is about history and stories and playing catch, and and, and he's all into all that, and, and that really what attracts him. We're talking with Scott Crawford from the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. It is induction weekend this weekend. Scott, it's always best to arrive early on induction day for anyone heading to St. Mary's on Saturday. What do you recommend? Get get here at eleven because there's ball games to watch and the barbecue will be cooking up delicious food and the auctions are here and, and ceremony starts at one and then the autograph session right after that. 
Okay, so arrive as early as possible. It's always such a great setting. People who are fans of the Toronto Blue Jays need no introduction to Lloyd Mosby, but take us to the moment that you told him he was being inducted. Yeah, he was, uh, you know, he's known as the Shaker. I mean, you all remember him from the 80s. He played center field for 10 years for, for the Blue Jays. So that, that, you don't see that anymore in very many players or teams. Um, he, was, he was excited, but he was also shocked because he, he, you know, he said he had a great long career, but he thought he could have played better. And, uh, and, you know, he's just, he's one of those outgoing individuals. He's still helping kids and helping the Jays Care Foundation and, and doing his thing all over the place, teaching kids. He lives down in California, but I think he's in Toronto more than he is down there. And uh, he's just, he, he, he's excited, but uh, I think he's still trying to figure out, you know, why, why am I in there? And, you know, we tell him and we show him the numbers and the career history of the Blue Jays. And, and when you're top four in about 10 different offensive categories after 40 years of history, you, you deserve to be in the Hall of Fame because you're one of the greatest Blue Jays ever. We're talking with Scott Crawford from the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. Induction ceremony starts at 1 o'clock on Saturday. Make sure you get there early, though. That's where you get the best parking, and there's always stuff going on, and they do have some of the most delicious barbecue that you've ever had. So let's look at, at Pedro Martinez as we close out. If you missed it, he is unable to travel because of a medical condition, so we'll miss him this weekend. But you look at his impact on the game, Scott. What do you pinpoint it as? I think for as he he Montreal meant a lot to him. He told me that Montreal made him fa- feel safe and Montreal made him feel happy and he enjoyed playing in Montreal. And it all, you know, a lot of it goes back to when he was with the Red Sox and won the World Series and that famous quote where he said, you know, this is for the people of Montreal. They didn't deserve to lose their team. You know, I'm really sorry and thinking about them and and all that. I mean, that was just, you know, you just won the World Series for the Red Sox and you're talking about how much you miss Montreal. I mean, that tells you what he thought about the Expos and the people of Montreal and Canada. And that's what's making it so hard for him, he said, to uh, He tried to convince the doctors that he, he, uh, you know, he could travel, and they're, they're like, we're the doctors, Pedro. <laughs> you, can't, uh, you can't travel. So um, he's just, uh, he, he loves Canada. Canada loves him back. And, and uh, you know, he's there for four years, and he won uh, Cy Young, and he's two-time All-Star. So he's pretty done good in Montreal. Well, enjoy what will be another fantastic weekend. Scott, thanks so much for the time today. Hey, thanks for having me on. Scott Crawford, Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. We'll be back to close out the show in a moment. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Great weekend coming up. Air show. All sorts of things. And weather looks good. Looks very warm by Sunday and into Monday. We didn't find anybody during the show today who owned a waterbed. I didn't think so. I don't even know if they're code anymore. Can you actually purchase a waterbed anymore? They were really popular for a long time. But it does smell like sleeping on rubber and there's a lot of there's a lot of down parts. I don't know if anybody sells. If if you're out this weekend, I'll do this too. Look around. See if you can find a waterbed somewhere. I don't know that I've seen one in a long time, but there is a company in San Francisco that's trying to bring them back. Best of luck to them. On Monday, we are going to be talking about the Hockey Canada Foundation Gala, which is going to be taking place in London. We are also going to be talking next week with People for Education. 
And we'll be looking at a couple of stories that have been going around in the education world. So that's just just a small smattering of what we will get to. News is coming up next. Matt Trevithick will have that. They're at halftime. Portugal and Spain. Portugal with two goals from Cristiano Ronaldo leads Spain 2-1. to one. Have a great weekend. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL.